Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life Live. Today we're going to be talking about good versus evil in the context of the mountain. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'll be your host. This is Dr. Jonathan Rose. Thanks so much for Hey Curtis. Out. Hey everybody. Hey, you're already here hanging out. Why don't you just go ahead and like and subscribe? I know you're just starting to watch, so that's a risky maneuver, but that really helps us out, <laughs> and especially to subscribe helps you out getting the fresh Swedenborg content. And you get content <coughs> like the content we're about to be content to give you right now. So we're, we're following up from... Oh, I like that content <laughs> joke. We're following up from... Uh, our subscriptions just went down like 450. All right, we're following up from this show, which was last week. We called it How Earth Reveals God's Love. Mm. And this was our opus on correspondences. Yeah, and especially mountains, the correspondence of mountains. It was awesome. And we're going to look deeper into this because even though we spent all this time and we were looking at the nature of mountains and how they represent this love that brings us into a higher state of mind, we actually didn't even give you the half of it because we looked at the positive symbolism of mountains, but actually mountains can have both a, both a positive and a negative that's symbolism. Right. And that, that's actually as it is with all correspondences. So what could be the opposite of the love of a mountain? We'll mm. tell you in a minute. First, we're going to do our icebreaker, mm. which is where we get warmed up, you get warmed up. So we're going to have a little bit of participation coming up next. If you're in the chat, and you, at this point you are, but when I say this point, it could be you watching it recorded later, no space and no time on the internet. But if you're in the chat live right now, get ready. We're going to answer a question that's, that's related to our topic. And we want to hear what you guys think about it as well. You type those responses in. Our team grabs them at the end of the show. We'll read them all off because we want to have a community of thought. That's what we're up to, and, and we can't have it without you. All right. Question. You ready? Question. The question is as follows. How can you tell the difference between positive and negative kinds of love or pleasure. Mm. And this is an essential thing to think through if you're going to do the Swedenborg route, because Swedenborg is all about there being different kinds of love. We think of love as, love is good. If someone's yeah. got love, you want to be around them. All yeah, you need is love. That's right. That sounds good. Now, that is not the case, always, because you can, Sweden, how, how does Swedenborg define Love. I mean, he, he lets it just kind of be an attraction, whether that's to something helpful or, or harmful, right? Uh, harmful, that's right. And the pleasure goes with both. Yeah. And the thing is that on the outside, even if they may be very, you know, he uses the example sometimes of wax fruit and things like that. Yeah. That could look indistinguishable from even pretty close up, you know, a foot or two away. You think, oh, that's, that's an apple. And then, you, oh, it's just a, you know plastic and it's, they didn't have plastic back then but they had wax fruit and fake fruit but and so the point is unassailable either way that's yeah. right that they you you it's difficult to tell the difference and so my first thought and response is that this is such an important question i can't think of a more important question than how you tell those things apart well because we're able to delude ourselves aren't we like we get thoughts oh, that exactly right i was trying to cut you off to say your very point you're about to make well why do we have to have all these campaigns saying hey don't bully people uh, you know, don't commit crimes. Don't do this kind of stuff. If there was no uh, allure to the, those yeah. actions, but those, everything negative, Swedenborg says, comes with a kind of pleasure attached to it. Now, all the ego stuff, everything, in, it, hell actually can feel good. And so it's hard for us to pick out what's hell and what's heaven because to the stuff we're 
we're into, they both feel like heaven. Right, and when you're young, you, you have a heavenly experience. I'm thinking about, you know, childhood. You, you'll, you'll have a heavenly experience, and then you torment some classmate or something. They both feel good, and you can't really tell the difference. And, know. You know. Yeah. And so one of the ways that I would say that I try to tell that love and that pleasure apart is almost not looking... The only thing I would look for inside myself is how I feel after the fact, yeah. shortly after the fact, because I find there's sort of a siphoning effect when I do something good for people sometimes. At the time, I might feel neutral. I might even feel tired or sort of my heart's not in or something like that. But then just afterwards, mm -hmm. I'll get this rush of love, you know, and then I'll realize, oh, I think I just did a good thing. Yeah. And sometimes I do something that I think is fine or I say something that I think is fine and all of a sudden this anger is there because yeah. I realized, oh, actually that was kind of a snarky comment and it doubled after I siphoned it in by, by doing it. The, the other way I try I to tell... I forgive you, by the way. Thank you. Is, <laughs> is through other people, like yeah. the feedback of other people because other people sometimes, you know, someone will say, why are you yelling? And I, I didn't think I was yelling, yeah. but that's the way you're coming across. Yeah, I would add to that, I think about monosodium glutamate, or oh, MSG, course. which is this thing that as far as, no, you know, it's the thing in food, right. that as far as, as I can tell, it, it, something doesn't actually taste good, but you put this chemical on there, and it makes it taste really good, because it messes yeah. with your taste system. And, and I it think actually that, amps up the way you taste the salt, or something like that, that makes the salt better, or something. That amp up, I sort of feel like, these ego or hell pleasures have that buzz, like mm. like this. I'm like I'm peaking the speakers. It's, or a little more vibrant. It just feels a little bit out of control. Even e right. that, that you can tell that the um, it's amped up in some it's way. It's amped up yeah, that the pleasure right. of usefulness and of love and of community is more like actually outside versus like a cartoon of outside. You know, right. Does that, does that make sense? Right. And I also think so often uh, the Lord is playing a long game that you'll get satisfaction later sometimes. Yeah. Like like the the evil kinds of love and pleasure are very much into instant gratification and you'll pay for it later. You know, like it's terrible oh, man. later, the next day or, or whenever. But, but the other kind might even not feel like that big a deal right at the moment, but it's like, Oh, it starts to grow on you. Like, it's, it, this feels good. You know, it's I was, going in a good direction. I was driving in the car, and I was having this thought of, like, the pleasure of hell is that whatever, the, the nature of hell is that whatever pleasure you feel as you're going, going for it, eventually it's misery. The net, the net uh -huh. effect is misery. So the, Where the road ends up is, you know. Yeah, so right. you're, you're getting this, like, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome to do it. This is awesome. By the time it's done and you've moved on and you have perspective on it, wherever that comes, in the end, hell is always like, ah, I wish I hadn't engaged in that thing. Overall, right. even if you're not like, I'm sorry I made people feel bad, but just the way it degrades your ability to be happy or whatever. Yeah, that's right. That, so that in, if you're not looking at it through the lens of time, it's insane to do anything from hell. Because if you look at the end, this is not going to help me. Why would right. I ever want to do it? But it's just, that's, that's, anyway, that, maybe we'll make a video about that at some point. That's but, good. So those were our if long answers. If only we answers. had some venue for something like that. Nah, man, I wish. But that's stuff is expensive. So yeah, right. those were our long answers. We'd love to hear what yours are. Uh, obviously, an open-ended question, but we're always impressed by the quality of response we get. That's right. This time, we're going to be double impressed, I know. 
We're going to need this kind of deep thinking because we're going here. We're going to dig deeper into the symbolism of mountains, and oh. we're going to do it. We didn't at all through last episode, but we are going to look at the symbolism in the Bible because Swedenborg oh, explains. Oh, there are a bunch of mountains in the Bible. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's full of mountains, and Swedenborg is often explaining correspondences through the imagery in the Bible. So mm. we're going to we're gonna, we'll be talking about the world and mythology and everything in between, but also these sacred cool. text images and what do they tell us about? Love, good and bad. So let's get going to part two. I mean, maybe this is part three. We don't really number them anymore, but now I'm thinking there was definitely Icebreaker, um, the first one, whatever. This is part two. And for part two, we have a co-host with us. This is a mountain. Well, it's like a small one. It, it might be just the top. Every mountain, I yeah. think, at least that a child draws, yes. ha has a top. This, right? So this is the very top of This the was the highest rock on Everest, but we brought yeah. it here just to That's help us right. illustrate a couple of things. Uh, because right off the bat, the idea that there's a positive and negative correspondence to mountains, as there is to anything, makes total sense. Because if you just think about the way that mountains show up in the physical world, there can be this huge dichotomy in the impact that they have. You can, they can be lovely and scenic and inspiring or destructive. And, and this raises an important point right away, which is that it's not just arbitrary. Like what correspondence is, isn't just an arbitrary assignment of a meaning to, oh, let's call this rock country X. Yes. You know, and the, the desk will be country Y. So, you know, that's just arbitrary. There's, there's nothing intrinsically rock-like about this or that. Uh, but that's not the way it is with mountains. As you say, the weather's intense up there. Mm -hmm. It can change on you. Uh, it can be a very harsh environment, uh, and that's part of what mountains mean. They have a good side and a bad side. That's why we went last episode into so much detail about the characteristics of mountains, because every single detail sheds more light on their meaning, and that's why correspondence is so cool. It's something about the shape and the height and the solidness, and we're going to see here and a couple Curtis, of other. is there a reason I'm the volcano? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the graphics team, man. But okay, there's there's okay. got to be a correspondence yeah. to it of some kind. So we talked we talked with our um, you know I had the final edit and I was like swap aside. <laughs> uh, so we we talked because uh, we want to bring in this mythology uh, angle to it because this is so obvious that we can put these pictures here and we have this emotional reaction to these things. You don't have to have Swedenborg in your mind to associate oh, mountains no, with true. a positive and negative. So cultures all around the world throughout history and throughout mythology have been assigning or maybe perceiving the meaning in these. So we talked to our friend Dylan, who studied this stuff extensively, a little bit about the mythology and folklore around mountains, and we're going to use some of what he said to us as a way to move our story forward. Mm. Before we can talk about the specific symbolism of something as broad as a mountain, I actually think it would be worthwhile to talk about symbolism itself. Um, I think in the sense that symbolism is not a one-to-one -one bad dream book sort of translation. You don't say a mountain equals this uh, because just like Swedenborg's correspondences, just like Jungian archetypes, I think it's important to know that symbolism has everything to do with the context of what is around. I think there's a lot of debate about to what degree symbols, archetypes, correspondences are universal, um, this having a similar meaning across every culture. But even if they are universal, it still has to do with the specific context. Uh, a mountain in this dream 
does not translate to the same thing as a mountain in this folktale. And when, when, in that sense, I think that mountains are neither, we know mountains are neither good or evil. Um, but one thing we could say about mountains, I think, is that they are significant. Mm. Mountains are significant. I like that word. And that's just a truth about the world. Like, the, the people are, are writing these stories and things about mountains in a significant way because mountains are significant. If there's a mountain between you and where you need to go, you got to talk about it. Yes, and you've got to arrange your life around. You know what I mean? Yes. Everybody knows where those mountain ranges are and all that. It's, and it's an organizing principle to your life. The climate where people live is often dictated by mountain yeah. ranges. It's are you on this huge, side or that side of the... Huge impact. And Swedenborg says that their significance is there in part because they correspond to the most significant love, positive and negative versions of it. But this is the, the, significant, the significance of this love, whether it's a love for ourselves alone or a love for the rest of the human race, is because it determines really the direction uh-huh. of our lives. Right, you're steering around that love and it's like yeah. it's, it's there. It's, it's a big thing, whether that's, as you say, a self-centered love, love of God, love of the neighbor, yeah. material, like love of possessions, those sorts of things. That, that, that affects the climate and the entire rest of your mind and mm. heart. That whatever's there at the core of you affects all that stuff. And, and so it can be positive and loving, but also can be negative. And we see this in the Bible. There's negative mountain symbolism. This is from uh, Revelation 8.8. 8. So what do we got here? The second angel sounded his trumpet. And something like a huge mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. So that mountain was, a, a neg- you know, why is it being cast down? Why would it turn the sea to blood or yeah. a third of it? It's, it's a negative image there. That mountain is a, is a negative, whatever it means is a negative thing. It sounds ominous. Anything that creates a ton of blood sounds, just sounds Probably ominous. Bad. And it also As sounds... a rule of thumb. <laughs> just, it, if, just, if you take nothing else from today's show. But it also <laughs> sounds very symbolic. There's, they're obviously trying to paint a picture of something. But what? This is what Swedenborg says this is a symbol of. And something like a huge mountain burning with fire, this symbolizes self-love. Ah. And from that, a love for one's own intelligence. Oh, that's so interesting. Pro- like, I'm, I'm so smart. Right. This kind of love is meant by this mountain because a mountain, in the word, can symbolize our love. There it is. Namely, heavenly love or hellish love. How could you have hellish love, though? That's interesting. Hellish. So... It, wouldn't it be hellish hatred or something? Hellish right? love is interesting. But if you think about it, if you're, if you're in this, like... I only care about myself. You don't hate yourself. If you're no, like, that's right. I'm pretty awesome, you know, or like not even not even thinking about yourself as a person, but what I want is good to get. Yes, that's right. probably more yeah, the, yeah. the essence right. of it. You're not even thinking about mm. consequences. The subject here is the evil who are to be separated from the good. Oh, so that sounds very scary and apocalyptic when you read that verse. Yeah, but actually the meaning has to do with something good that yes. this evil is being removed from you. Yeah. You know, like when you're on that path, you you really want that self-centeredness not to take up so much space. You know, so having that that mountain cast down and seeing what's false—that's that blood yeah. in the sea that results from it. And doesn't this fi- give us finally a good context to understand when Jesus Christ says, "If you have faith, you can move mountains." Oh, that wouldn't be positive. It's not like rearranging the landscape to increase your land value or something. Yeah. He's talking about. Uh, that there's again that self-love can be cast down yes you know if you have that relationship with the lord uh 
that thing can be pushed, pushed aside. And if you're really in tune with just how hard it is to stop being selfish, oh. it feels more amazing than an actual mountain. Yes, <laughs> if, right. if you can That's get right. any progress on that. But it also, because it, it, without that explanation, that passage bugs me for two reasons. One is, it doesn't, it's not true. Because there's a lot of people with a ton of faith sure. out there. There's nobody and moving a mountain. Hasn't moved an inch, yeah. Right. Nobody's moving a mountain without bulldozers and explosives and things. But then also, what's so good about moving a mountain? Let's say that you were yeah, a, a tyrant of some kind. You would have the most resources at your disposal. Just, okay, marshal the armed forces to go move this mountain. Like there's a mountain between your country and the next yeah. one, and you want to just get a little but more territory. That is not any kind of moral progress, just being able to move that. So Why, why is would, Jesus helping you with that? Why is God coming down to say, hey, I, I can help you do something that otherwise you would need dynamite to do. There's got to be a spiritual meaning. So that, yeah, that's the that's meaning. Right. That's good. So now that we've got that set up, um, we're learning each characteristic carries this spiritual meaning with it. So that was the significance of mountains. Let's hear from Dylan now more about the characteristics of mountains in these contexts. Part of this constellation of images that we would create for a mountain would be just to collect all the different stories we can think of. So the first thing that comes to my mind would be the sheer size of a mountain. When anyone thinks of a mountain, whether you're in one culture in Africa or another culture in uh, Scandinavia, the idea of a mountain by definition has to do with its size, its height, um, how, how you can see it from anywhere. Um, so in a lot of ways, the first thing, the th first larger theme that would come out about the image or the symbol of a mountain would be its significant size. Um, one sort of adage that comes to mind would be Muhammad. There's the phrase, if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, Muhammad must go to the mountain. So that's talking about the immovability of a mountain. Um, it is permanent and therefore we have to move to it, we have to transcend it, we have to um, move toward it. You think mm. about that, that size and that immovability, in the negative sense, as we talked about, this can be just how hard it is for us to dislodge ourselves from a negative life. Wow, if you've really built your life around yourself, yeah. your own interests, and not caring, you know, really not caring how much damage you do along the way or something yeah. like that. It would be so hard to move that aside and not have yeah. that take up center stage yeah. for you. No, it is so hard. I've, I've tried it. Oh, <laughs> nice. But, but um, on the flip side, mountains can be a positive symbol and that same size and, dif and, and stability oh. is like the power of this good love. as well love. to the, the positive kind yeah. of love. Okay. They're actually, they're, and there's all kinds of positive symbolism of mountains in the Bible. We actually did a show about this called The Spiritual Future of the Human Race. This was a very, very long time ago mm. when the show was, was relatively new. And I'm really excited about our next guest that we're going to show a clip from because this is back when we had you on as a guest. Oh. And this, this, is, this is Dr. Jonathan Rose talking about a very special mountain prophecy talking which was a description of this awesome new era to come so i'll let uh, dr mm. rose take it from here there's an image in scripture as another kind of correspondential image that you see is the image of the mountain and mountains appear a lot and have great significance in the old testament in the new testament you see a lot of mention of mountains 
And when there's this prediction of this future time, of this new kind of religious era or this new kind of spirituality that'll come into the world, it's often framed in terms of mountains. That's about love. It's about loving God, about loving the neighbor. Uh, it's a symbolism for mountain. You can see a little hint of this in the in the way that you feel. There's something exalted about mountains. They, they're, their loftiest kind of human state is represented by mountains. And the highest state that we can be in is love. It's a state of loving God and loving our neighbor. And so in the future, there will be a time that uh, it's about the mountains. In other words, the center of this religious era will have to do with love. Mm. You had a lot of books back then. Yeah, and a sport coat. <laughs> what happened to that stuff? Yeah. Well, so let's, we're talking about positive biblical prophecies. Let's take a look at an example of one of these. I love the idea that you were putting out there, a future centered around love. So where, mm. where do we hear this being talked about in the text? So this is Isaiah 56. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. There'll be all kinds of people, and even this last group he's been talking about, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You got a sort of a hint in the text there that the holy mountain is not literal because of the house of prayer. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's aligning it with, yeah, mountain is really vast and the house of prayer is much smaller. Uh, but this is a prophecy that at one point we'll be drawn towards greater and greater love like that. Because if it was a physical mountain, you might say, oh, thanks so much for bringing us up here. It's going to be night now soon. What? It gets very cold on the mountain at <laughs> night. Right. When it's winter, the we cannot be up here. The wretched. And, but, yeah, right. but look at the, how touching this, this internal sense is. So this is Last Judgment 66. One, once people have been received by the Lord into heaven, they can never be plucked out of his hand. Ah, so that's the immovability you're talking about that you've got a solidity that even, I'm thinking of the scripture that says that, uh, you know, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Yeah. You know, it, there's, there's things that are even beyond the, the mountains in, in stability, which is this incredible divine love. And if you think about the struggle that we're on, if you think of heaven as a state of mind, and of the peace and the happiness that come from uh, letting go of everything that's in the way and, and, and God getting to put us where he wants to be, you think about um, us being able to stay there. With how, here, how it's a struggle, it's this treadmill, yes, it's this carousel, right. that it's like, oh, we're feeling good, we're feeling really bad. Um, not that you don't have cycles there, but something about like, don't worry, uh, you're not, you're not going to fall you. off the train. That's right. I love it. I love I've it. got you. That's, that's very reassuring. So there's, now we're going to get a little bit intense and weird, which is like the Swedenborg thing, because we're going to yes. be talking about the it's appearance of mountains in the spiritual world, and how things like this, much larger of course, are seen, but some are actually mountains and some are just the illusion. I can't think of anything of more physical and concrete than a mountain. The right? idea that you would have that, of all things, in the spiritual world is kind of bizarre. This it? is Apocalypse Explained 5.10. The reason why a mountain can mean either heavenly or hellish love is this. There it is again. Angels of the third heaven who have heavenly love live on mountains in the spiritual world. Oh. So mountain means that third heaven. And, or in terms of the way angels think about it, abstracted from people and places, it means the heavenly love that makes heaven heaven. So that's what the mountain means. It makes that highest heaven. It's that love is yeah. actually where they live. And then they physically 
appear to be on mountains that yep. manifest there. The, that's the driver. It's not, oh, this is so great being up on a mountain that I feel like I'm in heaven. But you're in that no, kind of love that wants to constantly do things to make life better for everyone. That elevates your spirit to mm. that point. In the negative sense, however, a mountain means a love for oneself. Because those who are immersed in self-love, and again, this would not be like self-esteem, but this would be putting yourself above everyone else, constantly want to climb mountains and make themselves equal to angels in the third heaven. (laughs) So that ego is like, I'm just as good as you. That's right. I want to be up there. Even though I don't have any of the love that characterizes you getting where you are. Or the wisdom. Because they think about doing this in their fantasies, they also try it when they are outside of hell. This is why mountain in a negative sense means self-love. Very interesting explanation. In a word, those who are immersed in self-love always yearn for high places. Hmm. So after death, when all the states of love become correspondences, they have the illusion of propelling themselves way up high and believe they are on high mountains, when in fact their bodies, spiritual bodies, spiritual bodies, are in hell. That's right. And that's an amazing statement that you, uh, when everything about your life becomes a correspondence, when you're kind of yeah. living in a cor- world of correspondences, then you're, you're trying to get up high there because of your self-love. Isn't this like the, the reflection we were saying before where heaven and hell can both feel good? They can both try to be the right. same thing to you. Oh, yeah. You'd think that it'd be... They're going for the same territory, in a sense. That it'd be like, the, oh, the heaven is like a mountain because you go up high, and hell, and people in hell just want to get down really low. But no, they both, like want to be on the mountain but hell for the opposite reason but this is right. this illusory track up for them i find yeah that. that's right because the center of where they are is still down yeah. in hell because the thing that's motivating them is actually hellish not heavenly in heaven you don't even care if you're on the mountain you care about what you're doing you know and how you're helping right. and, and and the love and who you're better than yeah, but the, no, no, that's the hell. That so that's what hell pictures heaven at. Like, oh, yeah, I, I get to be right. way up there. I get a view. Right. You know, I'm going right. for it. It's the, it's the uh, this, they want the same. Like hell is focused on the perks, whereas heaven is focused on the essence. Yeah, and I picture heaven up on that mountain, just looking out and saying, "How's everybody doing? Yeah, what can we do for people? What yeah. would make this whole world better? You know, yeah. that's sort of a mountain perspective, isn't it? Totally, and maybe because of that positive correspondence of mountains there are some really intense ooh, I almost uh, moved yeah, a mountain don't, right don't there mountain, I must yeah. have some decent faith going on yeah there there are some very intense Impressive. experiences that happen in the Bible up on mountains so we're gonna look at some of the most famous ones coming up hmm. it's worth noting and we're going to note it here that, that among others, Noah, Moses, and Jesus all have these really important mm. experiences on top of mountains. And to begin this discussion, we want to look at mountains as connected with creation or recreation. And really? Dylan had some, some great thoughts about that. Beyond the sheer size, I think that kind of takes to the next point, which would be the mountain as a symbol, its involvement in creation and recreation. A whole lot of world mythologies start with uh, sort of prima materia. The the first creation of the world is in the form of a mountain. Um, It's a it's a it's a mother mother earth symbol. It's a goddess symbol in old old cultures, simply because it is um, another term would be a world navel, uh, as though it's the very center of a universe. And for me, that makes a lot of sense. If your cultures 
born somewhere around a mountain, you have a natural center point. Uh, that's what every culture around that mountain is going to point to as a natural center to the universe. So that would be a world navel, um, a place where the whole universe sort of circulates around. Um, it's, a, it's a prima materia in another sense too, which would be that in flood myths, which we know come up in culture after culture, Often, as that water rises, the last place you're going to see is the peaks of mountains. And then, once again, the first place you see, once that water starts to recede, is going to be a mountaintop. So it's almost a recreation of the world uh, at the very peaks of those mountains. It's the first place that life is reborn. Um, so, so those peaks have that sense. One of those well-known flood myths would be the story of Noah. Yeah. And we did a whole episode on the meaning of Noah and the flood. And in that, we had the story of Noah. Would you just catch people up in case they're not familiar? What, what happened in the Noah story? Sure. The, God was disturbed, the way it's written in the literal meaning, mm -hmm. by the fact that the human race had become corrupt and, and was bad. And so kind of we're, we're going to reboot in modern language mm -hmm. or something. And do people still reboot? I think they if, do. If it's not working, you reboot. Yeah, it usually good, works good. again. That's right. And so the idea was that, um, so Noah was called to build this ark and put some humans and some animals and so on on yep. there, birds, and, yep. and then they would float above this great tide of water and be able to uh, land again and repopulate the earth after wiping out all this all this, uh, you know, other life that was there that was no longer wanted. Yeah. It can sound, sound sort of harsh and cruel, but that's not the way Swedenborg explains the inner meaning. No, so the, in the inner meaning, uh, the spiritual sense of it, that flood is not God, uh, re God's retribution. This is the actual effect of the thoughts and feelings of things in the mind that were just turning people to this evil. So that's like you think about these destructive concepts just washing away everything that's living and good in a person when they grab onto them. And Noah was the part of us or the people who are willing to be steered in a new direction. Yeah, to yeah, that's examine right. Examine something new. And so let's, let's read a little bit of the text of that from Genesis. And the water strengthened greatly, greatly on the earth and all the high mountains, mountains. that were under the whole heaven were covered. Every mountain, 15 cubits, 22 and a half feet, if I do my math right, hmm. about a foot and a half for a cubit. And then 15 metric? cubits okay. upward, <laughs> the water towered, and it covered the mountain. So the idea of this flood was so amazing that it actually covered the, the mountains completely. And hopefully by this point, you're eager for details on symbolism because you say, oh, it's covering the mountains. That's got to mean something. What is going on? What's we'll, the water? What's the mountain? We'll yeah. give you our best shot at it here. This is Secrets of Heaven 797 and following. The water that covered the mountains symbolizes the fact that persuasive lies wiped out all the good effects of charity. So we're saying this oh, happened wow. at, a, at a point in the human race's history. So another meaning of mountain is this charity or love for the neighbor. Yeah. And that was getting buried under bad teachings, persuasive lies that were going on at the time. Even so that even like basic human decency at right. this point, this is why it was such a bad era in humanity. You couldn't even see it anymore. Yeah, the, the stuff yeah. that you just think, be kind to people underwater. You can't even see the basics of love, like right. even the mountain is covered up. The mm. meaning of 15 cubits upward, the water towered and it covered the mountains is the fact that nothing was left of charity. Mm. So it doesn't end like that though, right? You have the storm and the water is rising. 
there's all kinds of trouble that, that people go through. But eventually, ah. you get to this mountaintop, right? The floods recede. What, what happens then in the well, story? Well, it's sort of cool. After the, the water's been on the earth for 40 days and 40 yeah. nights, and it rains, and then it keeps on going for a long time where he's searching for yeah. dry land, can't find it anywhere. Mm. Then it kind of makes sense that as the water slips away, he lands on the top of a mountain. That's that's yeah. where the that's where the ark settles, and that has a beautiful meaning too. Yeah, because this is as the flood is receding, this new era is beginning. So this is how the text reads. And the ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. What and, does that mean? Yeah, right. What what could that possibly be? Well, there's a there's a detailed explanation. The symbolism of the mountains of Ararat as a bit of light. Oh, this is just a little tiny. That's the first little glimmer, a little yeah. inkling of something. Okay. Right. So this is the beginning, yeah, the beginning of the, the beating back of this, this plague that was on the human race. It's established by the symbolism of a mountain as the good that comes of love and charity, and of Ararat as a bit of light. The light that a regenerate person enjoys. Hmm. Because it, this flood, sure, it happened in it, It's in all of us, right? We all right. have this flood, and we all, the process of spiritual rebirth is Noah happening in our little minds and little hearts. And you picture that raining 40 days and 40 nights. It's so dark, yeah. right? The world is just incredibly dark at that point. And, and, and it, so here's that first little light that, yeah. that comes I'm up. I'm sure you can think back to some time in your life that, that resonates with this story. The new glimmer, the first glimmer, that comes to the regenerate individual never rises out of a knowledge of faith's truth, but out of charity. Ah, so this is not about instruction, it's not about learning, it's not about certain thoughts that you have in your head. Yeah. It's a love in your heart. Yep. That's, that's what makes the mountain visible. Oh, now it's, it, now not it's appearing that again. That's, the love is coming back. Right, and I was just going to say, it's not that that other stuff isn't good to have around, right. but, but those ideas on their own are not what does it. You have to feel something. Right, right. Faith's truth are like rays of light, Love or charity is like a flame. Ah, and I think what he's driving at there is that if you don't have the flame, you don't have the ray of light. It, 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 it doesn't, a lot of people think that, oh, you can just have those truths and that'll do it. But uh, it's got to come from that love. That, that's, that's the source of the light. It's a different experience to, okay, I know you're supposed to do this thing versus... <laughs> I really like I I want to be good to you because I just know it's yeah I how feel much more that it's light right. comes yeah. out of that position that's right the enlightenment of one who is regenerating does not radiate from the truth belonging to faith but from charity charity is what saying. enlightens yeah. yeah yeah so so we have that that story and the meaning there and that that heavenly love that we begin to get there eventually leads us to genuine enlightenment mm. which which Dylan talks a bit about. Another symbol beyond that would be the idea of transcending a mountain in a philosophical sense. Even the word transcendence, we have a double meaning. Uh, transcend literally just means to, to you know, ascend the mountain, um, to go up the mountain. So to, uh, to use that as a symbol for enlightenment makes a whole lot of sense. I think it's very fitting that Buddhist temples uh, are placed at the tops of mountains. Uh, we always, when we go to a mountain, the first thing you're trying to do is climb the mountain and, and reach a literal transcendence place. Uh, but moments of transcendence, I think, can be seen throughout the world. Well, in the stories of Moses would be a prime example of these transcendent moments. You have, first of all, the burning bush is well known. That's, that's mm. at the base of a mountain, right? Or, or heading up. 
It, that's right. It was at the base of a mountain, and uh, he saw the burning bush that was strangely not consumed. And then God spoke to him there and called him. And it strikes me right now that that was such a moment of transformation for him. He'd been a humble shepherd yeah. hiding out from a bad thing he'd done years before in Egypt. And here he is out in the wilderness. And then, all oh, now God's speaking to him, turning him into a leader. So yeah. he's being transformed. He's going into a transcendent state. That's, that's really like when he started being Moses, as we all think of Moses. Also, but that wasn't his only one. He, he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, which is right. another turning point. But, all, but while he was up there, from the ground, uh, the, it looked kind of frightening to the people. Yeah, right? the way it's described, there was thunder and lightning and earthquakes, and, and the people, the way the Bible tells the story, were, they were terrified. Uh, they even said at some point to Moses, you, you speak to God for it. We don't want to talk to him directly. <laughs> I don't know, want to mess sort of with terrifying. that. Yeah. Yeah. And so Dylan has some comments on, on why this sort of uh, intense, sort of fearful appearance. Moses has a deep association with the mountain. You can imagine the spectacle of a mountain where storms uh, collect around the peak of that mountain. You can, you can actually not see the peak of a mountain. It is in a different world. It's above the clouds. And so the idea of being the one that ascends that mountain and sees what others cannot makes a whole lot of sense. So Moses ascends the mountain and sees the fiery bush the burning bush that is not consumed and is enlightened and learns, uh, meets face to face for the first time with Yahweh um, and goes down the mountain with a, a new purpose, even if he's afraid of it. And then later in the story, he brings all of the children of Israel to Mount Sinai. And once again, at that point, it's a, it's a thunder god, it's a sky god in a very pristine sort of sense. There's terrifying clouds and a voice in the booming thunder. Um, and as Moses ascends, you see him transcending um, in his own enlightenment. So when he ascends the mountain, and speaks face to face with God and is going to receive the enlightenment that's going to shape Israel for the next thousands of years. He uh, has the Ten Commandments written out and then he has to descend the mountain and sort of take that enlightened knowledge that might be too high for, for a, an earthly dwelling people and he has to come down and translate that for, for those people. So it's important to go up into that scary place because what you can get out of it. But let's look at how the, the text mm. writes this story here. So this is Exodus. And the glory of Jehovah stayed on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And he, Jehovah, called to Moses on the seventh day out of the middle of the cloud. And the sight of Jehovah's glory was like a consuming fire on the head of the mountain, meaning the top of the mountain, mm -hmm. in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses entered the middle of the cloud and went up to the mountain. So he, just as Dylan was saying, he, he went right up out yes. of sight. Right. He disappeared from sight. And that, that going up is a symbol of us going up toward heaven, towards heavenly love and truth and God. But so why was there this cloud visible from below? And what did it mm. mean? This is what Swedenborg says in Secrets of Heaven. And the cloud covered, it symbolizes the final level of the word, 
which is as obscure as a cloud by comparison. So this is the the book of the Bible giving commentary on how it's so confusing itself. in itself. Yes, right. The reason the literal meaning is as obscure as a cloud is that it is designed for people who are still in the world, whereas the inner meaning is designed for people who have gone to heaven. Uh-huh. Isn't that the inner meaning we're trying to talk about right now? So this is like above our pay grade. Yes. Okay, great. We have to have at least part of our head in the cloud for this one. Bear in mind, though, that people alive in the world are nonetheless awake to the word, oh, here we go, awake to the word's inner meaning if they subscribe to the church's true theology in their faith and in their life. And in their life, important little so, tagline yeah. there, that's right. When these people go to heaven, the only way they understand the word is in accord with its inner meaning. So there you don't have mountain and Moses and it those names characters. Or names of rivers, and yeah, that's right. It's like this, this pure love and the journey and everything that it actually means. The word in its literal meaning is divine truth on the final plane of the hierarchy. It is like a house and its foundation. The house proper is heaven, finds divine truth as it exists in the word's inner meaning. Mm. The foundation is the world, where one finds divine truth as it exists in the word's outer meaning. Yes, the foundation. Yeah. That's cool. We haven't quite, though, gotten to why, why does God look so scary? At the top of the mountain. And I guess we'll never really know. Just kidding. This is, this is from Secrets of Heaven. Swedenborg explains, And the sight of Jehovah's glory was like a consuming fire on the head of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel, symbolizes divine truth in heaven itself, radiating with a, radiant with a loving goodness. Although, so that loving goodness is not so scary. Right? That's a good thing. Although, to people intent on the outer aspect of that truth in isolation from its inner aspect, it brings trauma and devastation. Here is the situation. There are two kinds of love diametrically opposed to each other. Hmm. Heavenly love and hellish love. Ah. Heavenly love is love for the Lord and for one's neighbor, love for the good of everyone. Hellish love is love for oneself and for one's worldly advantages. People in whom the hellish kind of love reigns supreme are in hell. But people in whom the heavenly kind of love reigns supreme are in heaven. It is now time to say how divine fire divine love works in people who possess heavenly love and how it works in people who possess hellish love. So again, mm. you might think hellish love, what is that? But it's just you know, your attraction to the object of your desire. So if the object of your desire is something harmful, you love it, but it doesn't mean it's a heavenly. Right. And it might be a small point here, but but it might sound like Swedenborg's criticizing the people at the bottom of the mountain compared yep. to Moses or something like that. This is everybody. This is any state. We all end up in this state from time to time. Right. That when you're in, in that state and possessing that hellish love, that's right. how it looks to you. you. You've got that bad perspective. In people with heavenly love, divine fire or love is constantly creating and renewing the inner reaches of their will and illuminating the inner reaches of their intellect. Oh, I like the idea of that renewal. That's cool. That's right. In people with hellish love, Divine fire or love is constantly inflicting trauma and devastation mm. to the object of your love. Because you think if, if what I want to do is harm people for my own gain, love is my enemy. Truth right. is my enemy. I don't want That's people right. to know what I'm up yes. to. It's not that God right. is attacking That's you right. because you're not good. It's because you're incompatible with society, with, with yeah. living together with people. Mm. In the latter people, you see, divine love alights in what is opposed to itself, and those opposite qualities destroy it. Mm. In such people, it turns into the fire of self-love and materialism, and consequently into contempt for others. Mm. So we're taking what should be divine love and truth, turning it into turning contempt for down. others, hostility towards everyone who does not favor them, and therefore into acts of hatred, revenge, and finally, savage cruelty. Mm. None of those are recommended behaviors. No, that is right. why 
the fire of Jehovah in the eyes of the children of Israel looked like a consuming fire. So yes, the children of Israel, they're meaning people who are in that state of hellish love, not that they were in that state, but the, in the language of the correspondence, sure. that's what's going on. And so it, it's like it's, there's that biblical story where the same thing was darkness to one group and light and That's comfort right. to another That's group. Right. You know, it's all about your perspective. I love the way that the Bible, even though it's thousands of years old, has this wisdom in it about perspective, mm -hmm. you know, of how things look from different perspectives. Yeah, and even uh, even Jesus participated in this because he had uh, a an important experience on a mountain as well. And we'll have yeah. Dylan give a, right. an intro to that. So it's a symbol of transformation um, because later on, uh, as, just as Moses is transformed into the leader, uh, to the earthly face of God at that moment, um, later Jesus has a very, very important transfiguration on the mountaintop. Would you fill people in on what was the, the transfiguration? There was a particular point at which Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, aside and took them up a very high mountain. Okay. And when he was up there, his face started to shine like the sun and his clothing is shining with light. And Moses and Elijah, who had died centuries before, yeah. appear beside him and are having a conversation with him. And they were so overwhelmed that, you know, they were, they were terrified and they felt like they were passing out and everything from the experience. And so they were really seeing him as he was internally. And you might say, if you're them, oh, we have to go through this intense experience. Why do we also have to walk up a mountain? Can't, you're Jesus. Can't you just do it down yeah, here? Yeah, do it down. Why, why not do it down that, in the valley? Right. It's about the correspondence. So this, is, right. this is the full communication with the spiritual meaning, and it makes it a teaching tool this for the rest of This is how love sees who he was. Yeah. That's awesome. This is Apocalypse Revealed, where Swedenborg talks about it. Mountains mean people who possess the goodness of love, mm. inasmuch as angels dwell upon mountains, mm. as we talked about. Those motivated by love toward the Lord on loftier mountains, those motivated by love toward the neighbor on less lofty ones, Consequently, every mountain symbolizes all goodness of love. Hmm. Since a mountain symbolized heaven and love, therefore Jehovah came down upon the top of Mount Sinai and proclaimed the law. A lot of people think the Ten Commandments are not about love at all, but that was why he gave the, the law on a mountain, yep. was that it's actually about love. Again, people can see that from a very negative, worldly perspective sure. or something, but it's actually from love. And therefore the Lord was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on a high mountain. Mm. Therefore, Zion was also located on a mountain, and so too Jerusalem. Yeah. All oh. this stuff, because, because why are mountains there so much? Because love is the point. Love is the love most is important the point. The most important thing to have commentary on in Revelation. That's what creates renewal. That's what creates that transcendence. That's what's really solid and stable. Nothing is more stable, actually, than love. So we're talking up love here. Maybe you disagree. Now is the time to get your, your comments in because we're headed to the, the Q&A right now. We'll see you on the other side of this like 20 second break. We love interacting with you all and we love getting to meet you and hear from you. We, we got like this big, this mountain but full size of love for interacting with you. So if any of you feel inspired to ever send in a little testimonial about, and what we'd love to hear is like, how did some kind of Swedenborg concept mm. help you out in your life? Or how did, you know, what's something that has brought to you? 
we'd love to show it on this show. We actually have a sample here because one of our viewers, Trin, was kind enough to send in a little clip, and so we, we're going to hear just, it's just 30 seconds, but here's a little bit about how this, the concepts move in her life. Hi, I'm Trin Rose. I'm a Swedenborgian Christian, and I'm delighted that I grew up knowing that the divine is the same and the greatest and the least of things. I feel like it's such a pleasure to see my Arizona garden blooming and delighted and the lizards coming by and the butterflies and that it was all created by the Lord in a beautiful form. That's so cool. This is a thought. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's right. cool, like we're talking about delight, noticing the beauty, the, the encompassing, th that's the encompassing things of the Lord. That's what we're trying to get into the mind. This is the mountain we want to live on. So if you, want, you guys want to submit your videos as well, we'd be happy to, to play them here. So let's get to some questions now, hopefully during that. I was going to say during that video, get your questions in, but it's better we pay attention. Time for questions now. Let's see what's happening in the chat. This is the first one. Robert Bush asks, why did God make spiders, scorpions, deer flies, etc.? If you live in the northeast of the United States, you'd probably say Lyme disease carrying ticks. <laughs> That's right. What's the answer? Well, a Swedenborg's perspective, as I understand it, is that um, those things are all reflections of states of mind that people can be in, of a type of thought. Yeah or a type of feeling. In fact, uh, angels tell Swedenborg that that's how these species got started in the first place, was they were actually somebody's feeling. So somebody felt a scorpion. And I think when I, when I look in myself, I'm not thankfully feeling it right now, but the, um, you know, you can have feelings that are that sort of like, you better not, yeah. you know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna right. get you. Right. Uh, and if it's the last thing I do type of thing, or the spider that's lurking in the center. A lot of spiders are blind. I didn't know this for a long time. Wolf spiders are not, but, but a lot of spiders are blind. So they're yeah. at the center of their web, just waiting to catch something. And, yeah. You know, these depict something about ourselves, uh, deer flies and everything. So even though they're, they're harmful, and generally Swedenborg says, if it's harmful, then it's probably got a negative correspondence, but it doesn't mean that thing is negative you know yes here we start to get into the nuances of correspondences that's right correspondence nuances interesting that that would come up and yes and that that yes it doesn't just because everything that's an animal is just doing what it's supposed to do no, no like uh, just because a, yep. a reindeer just wants to eat lichen and doesn't try to harm you in the same way doesn't mean it's morally superior to a polar bear right. or a, it really didn't have a choice about no, it. No, animals just live in the order of their lives. The the question of why the orders of their lives are like they are, yes, has to do with the the physical world being an echo of the spiritual world. So if there's this kind of evil in the spiritual world, mm. it's going to find an outlet in the physical world. And it gets me thinking too, though. Um, I was saying stuff about ticks that carry disease that really, so around the, the northeast of the United States, there's this fear of these ticks that cause Lyme disease, which is this like really terrible condition. Nasty, nasty. They're just hard to diagnose and, yeah, and go, right. it's just like the worst thing. Mask but itself is many it's not actually the ticks that do that. It's this microorganism that they carry. So what's the correspondence right. with that? Because if there wasn't that microorganism, ticks would just be a nuisance. So is that like, there are certain kinds of thinking or feeling that you get into that if if they didn't have this other thing within them, they wouldn't be that bad. But if they didn't lead to that other thing. So I don't know, like, w we're obviously having to deal with that in the whole 
animal worlds having to deal with all kinds of uh, interspecies violence. And I don't think that's how it would be in a perfect world. But since it's there, you can learn amazing things by looking into the correspondences right. of it. And, and Swedenborg is pretty strong on the idea that, that every single thing serves some kind of a use. It yeah. serves some kind of a function. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes discovering that function, or sometimes things are function better when they're in this niche, and then they get out of control or something, yeah. and it, you've lost the balance or something. But, and and the same way with human beings, uh, every all different kinds of, you know, the Lord puts evil people to use as yeah. well as good people. Uh, the whole thing is a kingdom of uses. Well, and we we think, oh, spiders. I wish there was no spiders. We would be in a lot of trouble if trouble. there was no spiders. Because, and this is sort of like God is taking everybody, no matter what their character, and having them eat heaven and hell, all in between, somehow having them contribute and to the common good. These different states, and yeah. So we didn't really. It's pretty amazing. I mean, we sort of answered your question. I don't kind know. It's not our know. job to Who answer knows? anyone's questions. Yeah. Okay, on to the next. It's certainly question. not our job to judge whether we actually answered it. <laughs> do, Mary Richard asked, "Do we inherit from God?" like we inherit from our dad? Huh. Um, I would say... Interesting question. Uh, would be nice, right? Well, you inherit life, right? So yes. all of our capacity, everything. And if you look at like, hey, you look a little bit like your dad. Everybody looks like God because we're in the human yeah, image. In, in image and yeah. likeness, yeah. And uh, I've also been reading Divine Providence, which is uh, so strong that, on Swedenborg? this idea. Yeah. That's right. Uh, have you heard of him? No. And he's uh, hammering this idea of freedom and rationality and that these are gifts that are given to us every second and never taken away to eternity, no matter what we do with them. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a pretty huge inheritance because yeah. they really are, you know, only God is really free and really rational, but is able to give those things to us as if they were our own. So it's kind of like an inheritance, you know? Yeah, it's interesting that rather than genetics, you know, the genes that are expressed when we're born, you sort of think of your genetic inheritance as something that, that's immediately present in you. Sort of the, our spiritual inheritance from God is something that is unlocked through the process of regeneration. Because yes, right. we, we're meant to, in, and you meant end up a spitting image of God. The Swedenborg says you become become an image right. or a likeness. I can never remember which one is better. But well, that it actually changes in does different it? passages. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good, good. Okay, so I have every right to be confused about that. <laughs> but they both mean essentially that the more we are loving, um, friendly, compassionate, wise people, the more we are just like a real picture of the God is just coming right through. So you're seeing God. So we can through the work of spiritual regeneration and rebirth, you become, you know, you look just like God. You're like, hey, are you the child of God? I see God in you. Yeah, you know? that's so, right. And that way we all inherit that capability. And it's like this life is kind of where we get our ge spiritual genetics all in order so that if we get them right, then in the other life, they all manifest or yes, they all express. And all that uh, material is in there uh, potentially. And also when you're young, you're given these heavenly experiences before you can really stop the process from happening. Yeah. What Swedenborg calls remains or remnants, mm -hmm. you know, that the, the sort of a substrate on which your spiritual life can be built. So we get we get good things like that. Everybody gets good things. That's like the trust fund, God's trust fund for you. That's the other kind of inheritance that, that's there True. for us if we decide to cash it in. That's right. Thanks for the question. Let's, question. let's do another one. Why not? Mike S. asks, many spiritual traditions, many spiritual <laughs> traditions, some centuries old, claim that this reality is illusion or maya based on Buddhism. Does Swedenborg address this? Thanks. So, 
Yeah. There's a combination of, of reality and illusion to, I think, what we're experiencing here. Um, certainly, our perception colors everything that's here. Swedenborg even talks about that it's actually the spiritual that, that flows into the physical and not the reverse. So while we think our mind is kind of being shaped by what we see and what we hear, it's actually the spiritual part of us making the calls and sort of informing the way we see the world around us. So in that way, if we're stuck in illusions and things, it can really create an illusion of how we perceive the world around us. Yeah, and I don't know that he would call it a, a world of pure illusion quite to that Maya sort of extent. Yeah. But he does talk about appearances. He talks about appearances in connection with Scripture, that there are things that appear to be true, like God yeah. being angry or something, but it isn't really that way. And I think that's certainly got to be the case with all kinds of other things, that there are things that are actually a manifest, like mountains. Mountains are a manifestation of something. Yeah. But uh, how, how, you, how you read them or whatever, how they manifest, it certainly is a less, and uh, in a way it's less, I don't want to say less real, but it's less alive. Like yeah. you get more life as you go up, up, the, up the chain. Yeah. And so think about this, what are we talking about when we say the world? Because, sure, if you're talking about, oh, there's a physical mountain over there, there's a tree there, that might not be illusion, but what is the actual world to us as we live our life? It's the story we tell ourselves about the world, which is, I'm this isolated thing, there are these other people that are, that are either like my enemies, or if they like me, then right. I like them. Uh, there doesn't appear to be any kind of God or divine being. There are things that I should be afraid of. My, is my life going anywhere? It's chaotic. There are these good and bad things. They both seem about the same to me. We begin life or once we get into our adolescence or whatever, completely steeped in illusion. Like yes. all of our conclusions... And we we don't realize it. Yeah, yeah all yeah, of our conclusions and feelings about the world are totally false. It's not at all how life actually is. So that world, Swedenborg says, we begin as nothing but evil and falsity after right. this remnant period. That is, is total illusion. And to get out of that, then you may be looking at the same physical world, but your beliefs about it and what you pull out of it, 100% different. It, uh, yeah. Now you've got the same physical input, but you've got this enlightenment behind it. So I would say, like with everything, there are similarities and differences in the, in the Swedenborg. Yes, that's right. And that once you get to that point, Swedenborg's teachings do get you to that point, I think, uh, where you start to question, am I really having this thought? Is this the thought that I'm having? Is yeah. this a good thought? Is that a good feeling? What, you know, uh, where you get, the, which I think is what the the Maya concept has some of that in it. Yeah. Where you just you take it with a grain of salt. You know. Yeah. You're a little bit, you hold it at arm's length a little bit. Our whole thoughtscape is illusion. That we begin thinking, I'm I'm uh, responsible I'm for everything. Having thoughts. I'm a life form in my own right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm responsible for everything that happens in my head and in my heart. This is all just kind of my perception about the world. Swedenborg is saying, step back and realize that we're part of this larger spiritual complex and that you need to be more discerning about what you think and act on. Just because something there doesn't mean it's yours. It's totally different. What we start out with is total illusion. Yeah. So, yeah, true. Yeah. So anyway, Good. that's awesome. Great question. That's our questions. Let's get on to hear how you answered another question. All right. Uh, this is the ice melter. Do you guys remember that from the beginning? We had the icebreaker. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So let's review. We asked the audience, what do they think about something that related, and let's see how it all came. The question was, how can you tell the difference between something positive and negative, feelings <laughs> of love and pleasure? Something I remembered it. Slow. What did you all have to say? This is the first slide. The negative kinds ends up with crummy consequences. Mm, that's right. Positive ones will come out of love of God and love of our neighbor. Good will mm. triumph. Awesome. I tell these apart because true love is proven by what is done and not just what is said. Oh, that's true. Yeah, actions, not just words. Right. Yeah. I think they feel the same, but the aftertaste is different, maybe. Nice. Most negative pleasure bothers your conscience, mm -hmm. right? The way I tell the difference is true positive loves and actions will never hurt or abuse someone else. Intention is everything. Uh, that's correct. Intention yeah, is the soul of the so action. True. All right. If you are spiritually aware, the positive kind of love will always leave you feeling uplifted and joyful. Mm. The negative kind of love never lasts long That's it. in permanence, and you end up feeling deflated and disillusioned. Mm. What, are the, what are the side effects? Evil can be done for good reasons. Good can be done for bad reasons. It is the purpose and goal with a mix of justice and mercy that determines if it is truly good. It's mm, good. Awesome. Positive love and pleasure. Our loves are in the right order. Love of God, others first. Mm. I try to ask myself if it's from love of self or love towards others and or God. Yeah, right. So, discern, so use the intellect to discern what's going yeah, on in the will. It's tricky to tell. Yes, if your self-importance is stoked, that's a great indication your influence is hellish. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And isn't it always stoked? Positive pleasure benefit, pleasures benefit more than just yourself. Negative pleasures tend to be more self-centered, such as conditional love or when someone's ego is being fed when doing self-righteous things. Mm, Self-righteous, yeah. Real love is the guy or gal who puts the sacks of groceries on the poor people's porch, rings the bell and runs away, never telling anybody they did it because they did the act out of love and not limelight. The, the, that's good. <laughs> the, the knowing the good you did is its own reward. Positive, yeah, that's right. That's how the angels view it. Right. Positive love desires to cause no harm, but rather desires to be of service, to bring joy, healing pleasure to another human being and all humanity. Negative love is self-centered, harms others, etc. Awesome interpretations, and it seems that yeah, that you, you've you've got to use your thinking brain to examine things. Just to step back and say, okay, you can't tell by feeling. Let's examine the um, the clues here, and you can often get a pretty good picture. It's a it's a lifelong pursuit, I think, to try to get better and better at telling. Be, you know what's yeah. active in you at a given moment. That's the whole game, man. That's yeah. what we're doing here in life. If you want us to help get better, help us get better and better at making shows, again, <laughs> like and subscribe. If you didn't want to do it in the beginning, this this is a great way to. This is the easiest way to support the Swedenborg Foundation. That's so right. please subscribe today. Click the little bell if you want to know whenever we put something cool out. The second easiest way to support is join us on Patreon. We are a nonprofit, so financial support. This is just like a couple of dollars a month gets you to be a, a patron of our program that you, you're part of the group that's making this blast out into the world. And we give you a little behind the scenes gold to, uh, to say thanks. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. Anyway, ch check us out there, uh, patreon.com slash off the left die. All right, so next week, mm. we're going to be taking a look. This is an awesome story next week where yeah, we, um, we look into the story of a couple who lost their son to terrorism mm. and how Swedenborg's ideas helped them get through that difficult time and what that could mean for each of us as we face our own things get in to life. hear them actually testify about it. It's, it's amazing. It's going to be powerful. Thanks, Jonathan, for hanging out. Good fun. Thanks, all, all of you. And we'll see you here same time next week. Swedenborg and Life Live is Curtis Childs, host and showrunner, with co-host Jonathan Rose. 
live stream tech and graphics by Stuart Farmer and Matthew Childs, show writing and chat moderation by Karin Childs and Chelsea Odner.